Daddy can't help you now, because it's time for some flick clap. Oh Christ, we really are doing this, right? <laughs> we really are doing this. Come on, we did the first one and this is a natural continuation. Yeah, and th- then you are going to, you know, pull on a hard case on me in doing the part three eventually. Yeah, we must do it because I have some not so praiseworthy feelings towards that product. You you champion for this film, and then then you have not not so nice feelings towards the third one. And uh, that's the kind of setup with which we will get to this episode, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, this, this is once again the typical flick lab setup. Where for quite some time I've been telling Corey not to do this. Like, let's skip the film, let's not do this episode, not touch this movie. And Corey simply headstrongly pushes forward and forces us to go through once again with one film that I did not recommend. You you say that in the end of the episode, Henrik, not in the beginning. Just to remind you. <laughs> I, I, I want to lay my case already here at the beginning of the episode. But who well, knows, may, maybe I still end up recommending this film. It's, it's one of the great mysteries of the Flickler. You, you'd better, <laughs> after, I have, after I have laid my case here. <laughs> I'm actually waiting for your case here. <laughs> well, uh, <clears throat> firstly, I'm an anthropomorphic couch potato from Finland, also known as Karri. My co-host is... A total cinephile, one of the most famous podcasters in Finland, the one, the only, Henrik. I, I, I still don't believe they are that famous in Finland. We, we sim- simply, we may be one of the more international podcasts coming out of Finland, but there is a lot of podcasts in, in Finland. It's just podcasting done in Finnish. Suggestion is a powerful drug. Well, in that case, you know, feel free to actually... You know, simply pull that that previous part out of the episode and throw it to cutting room floor. Like, like I was just saying, we are probably the only podcast in Finland. Exactly. Precisely. Nightmare on Elm Street to Freddy's Revenge is <laughs> on our table. <laughs> and uh, it is an interesting one. <laughs> we had this the story about Fred and Nancy in the first one. Yep. We pulled it through with some interesting thematics. Now for the second one, the crew has decided to do a completely different kind of movie, albeit very successful. And I can already applaud them for that at least. At least they tried something else. That's a kind of courageous move to not cast Heather Langenkamp for the sequel, because you don't just don't want to pay her enough. But uh, that being said, it's a different film and uh, it's not a repetition. I can't understand that one of the reasons why Heather Langenkamp was not cast into the second one and why they took so completely different route was that they 
made this so closely following the first one that Heather was tied up with other projects, she wasn't free, there also was no blessing from Wes Craven for this film, and the producer mm-hmm. Robert Shea really wanted to get this one out of the gates as fast as possible since Robert had not made that much money with the first one. The first Nightmare on Elm Street had been a huge financial success, but unfortunately Robert had been selling all the rights to the film except the copyrights to the financiers of the first movie, and most of the profit that the first one made went to those financiers. So now Robert, who hadn't made the bank on the first try, really wanted to push this one to the theaters as quickly as possible so that he could have a franchise and he could have this cash cow of his own. That is totally understandable for taking into account that this is the only film that you can consider as a franchise in New Line Cinema at the time. If I'm not completely mistaken, this was also the film that kind of pulled New Line Cinema from the dumpsters. Uh, This and the first one. Yeah. This more than the first one, because this is the film through which New Line got most of its original cash behind it. But yeah, Freddy really is the character that eventually built New Line Cinema, and on top of whom the New Line Cinema as a major production house in the end was built upon. Without Freddy and Nightmare on Elm Street in the first place, most likely New Line Cinema would have stayed this small production house which simply produces and organizes screenings for these lesser-known B-movies. And it's not the first time that New Line Cinema has been needing something like this. There is the Lord of the Rings that saved New Line Cinema from catastrophic destruction. Yup. As I understand it, Heather Langenkamp was not even ever considered for the sequel, at least during when this sequel was on any kind of table. Could be, of course, because of Heather's other projects at the time. Well, And maybe that's that's how it all started, that this film is wiping the slate clean. Looking, looking at the final product, it's very obvious that when the film finally was getting on and the production was running, there really is no room for Heather Langenkamp in this film. I, I don't know what have, may have been the situation in the previous scripts, since there was, to my understanding, there were two different scripts originally, the first one being much more darker one, and they went with this one instead. So I, I don't know if there was a time when Heather Langenkamp was considered to continue on the franchise and continue on this sequel, and if she simply was dropped out of the consideration as the production went on, or if it was simply the case that nobody actually ever thought that Heather would return to the franchise at any point of the production. They sure as hell didn't actually consider continuing with... Uh, Robert Englund playing Freddy in this one. No, yeah, they were trying to be cheap bastards and try to go with some kind of an extra first, but then they pretty quickly figured out that this is horrible and there's something else to Robert Englund than simply the makeup. Yeah, the the story goes that Robert had 
started to feel ownership to the character of Freddy Krueger and also Robert's agent had actually gotten a bit more wise and realized that New Line is trying to build a franchise here which means that he can ask more money for his client and New Line really wasn't happy paying Robert England any more than they had paid him in the previous time so they first tried simply having some extra in Freddy Mask doing the stuff but in mid-production the director finally got wise of the situation and realized that it simply is not working. This is kind of the case that you pointed out in the Halloween episodes that the walk of Michael Myers changed drastically depending on the one who was portraying the character and that was the sticking point Mm. also with Freddy here. The walk was so off from what Robert had done in the first film that they felt that it no longer was Freddy and in that time the director Jack Shoulder told Shayi to actually get rid of simply get rid of the extra and pay Robert what he was asking for. Yeah, at least in this early nightmares, Robert England has certain kind of a cat-like quality in his walking, relaxed and very direct in its movements. All in all, yes, England is needed here. Yeah, he very most definitely is needed here. And is kind of kind of is carrying the film in a way. I, I would say well, a huge part of the entire franchise is actually England carrying the whole show. The thing with Freddy, and this might be something that was confusing the producers <coughs> in the original films, was that when these original nightmares came out, the first ones in the franchise, it was still that time period when horror movies were kind of dominated by Michael Myers' and Jason Voorhees', these silent hulking broods of a killers. And, well, with those kind of characters, it's easy to simply switch the actor behind the scenes. Only the diehard fans would notice any differences there. And, well... I, I get the feeling that the horror movie industry was had gotten used to using that kind of a villains, but Freddy Krueger is completely different type of animal from Michael Myers, from Jason Voorhees. He's much more flexible, he moves a hell of a lot more, and also... He is actually a talkative villain, especially here in Nightmare on Elm Street, where they knowingly made the effort to give Freddy Krueger more lines, make him more more talkative as a person. Not only that, that he can talk, but there is this interaction that you can actually talk with this character, whereas with Michael Myers it's not usually working that much and there is no output from the guy. That too. And also, this is something that Robert England and a lot of people who have been making Freddy movies have been pointing out, is that there is this sexual aspect to Freddy Krueger, like how he operates. This is something we touched upon also in the previous Nightmare on M Street episode where we talked about, can you contrast Freddy's actions with, for example, rape? is what Freddy does in a sense an act of rape. And that sexual aspect is something that really demands that you have an actual actor doing this stuff. 
and hopefully the same actor who has been playing the character before because there there is something that a returning actor can bring to the character he can build it onwards in a way that is something that is completely lost if you simply you know throw the actor out and take an extra and simply stuck a rubber mask on his face yeah not the same effect but uh, here we have as the lead actor mark padden who did audition for the first nightmare more than likely he was going to play the character of that johnny depp plays in the film in the original one but uh, he didn't get the part at the time but he was called back for this one and surrounding the whole film is the interesting aspect of making things very gay this is the often voted as the gayest horror film of all time this is known as the gay nightmare on elm street yeah yeah and unbeknownst to even the director the lead actor was gay and the script had this not even a subtext the in your face indication that everything is very gay when it comes to gayness in in nightmare on elm street 2 it's a very curious mess and it's kind of a story of its own and no one has actually ever been completely able to answer to that question what the fuck actually happened because there is there is so many stories going on behind the scenes what caused the film to be like it is and who was and was not homosexual on the set mark patton was and still obviously is is a gay actor that much is certain but there is also these rumors that the set designer was gay i i don't know if somebody ever hinted that the actor playing the main character jesse walsh's father clue gulager clue gulager yeah yeah if he, if he would have been gay i well if you i don't know about the guy but uh, looking at the interview he seemed to be kind of ready or just jokingly ready for some gay action at the set yeah i i also don't know about the man himself and i'm not making any such claims but there has been you know there has been suspicions about that circling around in the internet in some forums in the late past but it's my understanding that that this time still mark patton was not out of the closet that is my understanding also yeah and he, mark patton himself has said that during this film in his performance perhaps why it's quite natural and why it's actually pretty good performance here is because he is kind of going through these emotions and in a way through the story coming out that I can kind of see that one happening. There is also the interesting notion that when Patton was actually cast to play Jesse, he competed about the part against, for example, Brad Pitt and Christian Slater, who also auditioned to play the lead character. And Schroeder went with Patton because there was some kind of a vulnerability in Patton. And yeah. that, that is something that appealed to Schroeder when he was casting the film. In the interview, it kind of his body language, facial expressions seemed to suggest that he wasn't entirely happy that he was letting go through so many talents through his hands and ending up with Mark Patton. Brad Pitt did appear 
in at least a couple of terrible horror movies in the <laughs> beginning of his career. <laughs> the dude sure tries to make it so that we wouldn't remember, but we boys sure do remember it here in the Flick Lab. We do. And um, I'm happy that Mark Patton was selected. These other guys got their career going in any case. And you know, the well, Jack Shoulder could have had told everybody how he was the one that chose Brad Pitt to play Jesse in this film, but uh, I'm happy about this decision. I I am too. I, I may have many problems with the film, but they are not related to Patton himself. And I, I don't really know, you know, would the film be any better with casting of Brad Pitt or anyone else? Probably not, if they would have gone with the gay subtext. Subtext, yep, was extremely sub throughout the film. Even though the screenwriter do still maintain that in the script it was subtext and something weird simply happened on the set which made it mm-hmm. come to extremely obvious what they were going for or what they may not have been going for. Mm-hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is in the beginning and pretty much at the end of Mark Patton's career, so he did to come back to the five and dime Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean in 1982, his first film, which was noticed by, was it Robert England? England at least did know the film and had liked Patton in the film. And then he did two films, Kelsey's Son, a TV movie, and Anna to the Infinite Power, and then came Freddy's Revenge. And after that, there are some credits for TV series. After that, this huge break for about 30 years, after which he resurfaced now recently 2016 in Family Possessions and 2017 in Amityville Evil Never Dies, two very lackluster horror films. Yup. Patton is kind of a sad tale of a young Hollywood talent. He got the lead role in in a film that, in the end, became part of a major franchise. Nightmare on Elm Street was not the machine it became, yet at this point of time, this is, this is still laying the building blocks. But still, you know, it, it's not a small part for Patton. As an as an upcoming actor, it's actually quite the achievement to be highlighting a horror film of this caliber. But I've I've come to understand that after Nightmare, he was supposed to do this CBS TV series where he was to play a gay character. And well, this did happen in the mid of the America's AIDS crisis when the homosexual community was hit extremely hard by the virus, and then again by the establishment, which completely ignored their pleas for help, and kind of left them to rot to the gutter for a long period of time. And during this time, the CPS, to my understanding, was kind of tiptoeing the whole homo aspect of Patton, being pestering him with questions like, does playing this gay character in our TV series make you uncomfortable? And asking if if Patton would state that he is straight, if anyone would come present 
questions about his sexuality and well seeing how the it was the AIDS crisis Patton kind of got fed up with this bullshit and I've understood that that is the reason why he left acting so so early in his career and well of course he was it was I guess in 1998 Patton was something like in his 40s when he himself learned that he had gotten the HIV got his diagnosis after which he moved to Mexico and finally found his soulmate there and mm. yeah l- like you said returned into film in 2016 I I haven't seen Family Possession I know it's some kind of a indie fi- horror film I am aware of the film I simply haven't checked it out and 2017 in Amityville Evil Never Dies, which I was supposed to actually check out, since I have had this on-off relationship with the Amityville franchise, but then I saw some first screeners and some first sec pictures from the film, and it also became pretty obvious from those that it was once again some kind of a secret, cheaply made India horror film, and I, I simply decided that I will pass on that also. Yeah, so all in all, quite a ballsy decision from Mark Patton as his personal decision to leave Hollywood pretty much after Nightmare on Elm Street 2. I mean, I can understand his reaction for this TV series offer that during an AIDS crisis he wouldn't exactly be excited to not be supporting kind of his quote-unquote community and lie about his sexual orientation. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm surprised that he wasn't looking for some other roles, perhaps, or try something. He was in Hollywood, at least. I'm, I mean, he was in Hollywood anyway. The way I understood, and once again, to my knowledge, this is simply Patton's side of the story. I don't know what the re- real facts behind how much he got was getting job offers at the time where, but I, I've come to understand that Patton simply was so let down by the attitudes and the machine itself that he just lost interest into acting mm. and, and staying in the profession afterwards, which of course is a shame. Like, it, it's, a, it's a sad mm. story. Yeah, horror films are kind of filled of some sad stories. Hollywood in general is filled with sad stories. Yeah, but... Of course, we don't know the full story. I'm sure he has had a great time in Mexico and with his personal life, so hoping all the best. Then we have Kim Myers playing Lisa Weber. Yup, the love interest of the film. And has acted in Hellraiser for Bloodline. Which is the only film I actually have seen from her outside of Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Plays the wife of the Le Marchand, who is, if I remember correctly, is one of the flashbacks back to the 1800 France. She got the part because apparently she was so good. And she's good here. Mm, well, at least she is passable here. Mm. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily be, you know, handing out prizes and writing letters, but... She gives an okay enough performance. Yeah, it's okay. Has also acted in 10,000 Days and Don't Tell Kim recently. 
and Letters from a Killer from 1998. But all are films that I have also not seen. Only Hellraiser 4 and Elm Street 2 from her. Well, then we have Robert Russler playing Ron Grady. He also has a quite a long career in all kinds of TV productions for the most part. He has. There, there is some legit films like he before this one he appeared in the Weird Science. The fi- I've heard a lot of good things about Weird Science that it, it it's kind of a cult film that I should see. So have I. I've never seen the film itself. I was kind of a fan of the TV series that followed the film, but not touched upon the original. Yeah. But on top of that, there is, of course, his his visit to the video game world in Wing Commander 4. And, well, I, I guess most of the Finnish audiences at least would be most familiar with him through Babylon 5, playing Lieutenant Warren Keffer. And, of course, the, well, kind of a bad Stephen King ghost gang horror story. Sometimes they come back. And we also have this clue Kulager. <clears throat> and with with Kulager, we are actually hitting the heavyweights of this film. I would say Kulager and Marshall Bell, who plays Coach Snyder, may be the most well-known actors from this film. Yeah, goodness me, the guy is about... 91 years old during this recording and he has had an extremely long career. According to IMDb he has 165 acting credits to his name and has acted in The Last Picture Show which as well. Yeah, The Last Picture Show may be being his most acclaimed film. That being said, I do not know how big this role is for him here. Same here, same here. Yeah, so. But well, horror community, once again, since we are talking about the horror film, may remember the guy from Return of the Living Dead and playing the bartender in all the three Feast films. And also, if you happened, unfortunately, check it out. Also, Pyrana, 3DD. And then, of course, he did later on collaborate with... This film's director, Jack Schroeder, in The Hidden, following two years after Nightmare on Elm Street 2's release. Any good? I haven't seen the film myself, unfortunately. But, but, you know, this resume is not complete, unless you mention his brief appearance in the TV series Street Hawk, also known in Finland as Katuhaukka, which was something that was hugely influential in my childhood. It was... About a cop who who goes on as an unknown vigilante known as Street Hawk riding a prototype motorcycle which has some fancy ass robot gadgetry and was there a missile launcher even hidden into the motor vehicle? We have a lot of things to do to uh, need to see a lot of films surrounding Elm Street too. Especially in this case because when it comes to Jack Shoulder, the director, the hidden, I've come to understand, is his most acclaimed film. Most well received and often thought of as his best movie. But there are even better classics such as Wishmaster 2, Evil mm. Never Dies. Yeah, oh Jesus Christ. 
And uh, while well, he did Alone in the Dark, I haven't seen that either. Yeah, same here. Much to skip it. Any words about Marshall Bell playing the coach? Marshall Bell, I guess, might be the biggest name of the bunch. There, there is most likely you've seen the dude, you simply can't automatically remember him, but... Stand by me. Stand by yeah. me, being the lead mutant in Total Recall, showing up in Capote, working for Herchok in Operation Rescue Dawn. He was actually playing one of the bad guys in Johnny Depp's, even to this day, only proper film the man ever directed, The Brave, and, well, he does play one of the generals in Starship Troopers. Excellent. Yup. I think that covers the cast and crew pretty much. Well, yeah, there is still Hope Lang, I think, who we also maybe should mention. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, also pretty notable acting career behind her. Pretty much before Nightmare on Elm Street 2, like this was in the later parts of her career, but she did appear in David Lynch's Blue Velvet, and also playing the wife in Death Wish, the first one, which started that franchise, and later on there was, she did appear in, with, alongside with Harrison Ford in Clear and Present Danger, and following that there was the Sean Connery starred detective thriller Just Cause. Hope lands who plays Mrs. Walsh here. Yep. We do have two guys doing the cinematography here. There's Jax Haitkin, apparently very active still, more or less, has been in many big blockbusters Venom and Fast and Furious 8 and Kong School Island. Venom really being something you. I've come to understand something that you most definitely want to be remembered in your resume. Yeah, I, of course. I, I kind of heard bad things about that film. Well, if it's a Marvel film, it's not marvelous. <laughs> then we have Christopher Tufty, of whose resume I can't say anything that much. Henrique, would it be seen by scene? Sure, why not? Well, we do have already the legendary introduction scene of Freddy with the school bus. I'm so excited already. I am not. I And the reason here is the opening credits, which are fucking 80s action movie font combined with the sound effect, which really reminds me of Terminator 2 and other films of a kind. And uh, this, the soundtrack is done by Christopher Young, which we should have noted there. Who made the soundtrack of Hellraiser? Yeah, I kind of get the feeling that this is Young kind of a slacking off. But yeah... I like I like this soundtrack. I, I'm not a uh, huge fan of this one, to be completely honest. I, I think, to me, this is mostly simply something that plays in the background and I don't even notice it. There, there are some cues, some certain parts that are very good, especially during the pool scene later on. And I do like this haunting sound in the beginning right here. Uh, I, I think it's okay. And as discussed in, I believe we did discuss it in Hellraiser episode. For Hellraiser, he was asked to do something different than what he had done for Elm Street 2. 
which he did a little bit after this one. Oh, well, I can agree with you with the, with the fonts. They are like from a cheap TV series right here. Yup. But, but not to take our enjoyment away from the masterpiece that this film is. So. Well, I, I, I don't know. To, to me, the movie starts on a wrong foot. Are you saying that uh, Freddy is introduced way too early? Uh, I'm saying that the title in itself actually makes no fucking sense. Like it's well, it's, but, it's, but, but it's a it's it's a, it's a sequel. It it has to be revenge. But revenge to whom? By who? Uh, revenge what? to Heather <laughs> Langenkamp, who is not even the fucking film. Revenge. Revenge of... to the kids. What kids? Seriously. Well, kids in general, because he does love to chop into pieces the kids, and this is his great return. So, in a sense, it's a revenge. It's it's not a revenge. It's it's not a revenge the slightest. The first one was all about Freddy getting revenge to the parents who originally killed him by targeting their children. I can get that, but those parents are not in this fucking film. Those kids are not in this film. Actually, the person who Freddy ends up targeting is someone who and whose family has just moved into the town. Like, he's a complete fucking outsider. So, And this is how it's been since the beginning of the murder career of Freddy Krueger. Picking random kids, taking them to the boiler room and just killing them. Yep. So, no different here. No, no different. No different here. But once again, I beg the question. The fucking revenge? On whom? No. On how? No, well, the dick. I, I can see, I can see you getting like, bent on on that point, but come on, come on. It is a revenge. Just, you know, revenge. Re- well, maybe it should have been this is, like this is... outright written for you that it's Nightmare on Elm Street to Freddy's revenge against the kids. Well, you know, I, I would more say that this is Freddy's revenge against the logic itself. Well, that's what Freddy does best anyway. Well, yeah, I can give you that one. So, this bus scene, we're watching it and they are hanging on the cliff. And this is a very iconic moment when they are there. Like One of the most rememberable scenes from horror films for me. Of course, once again, one of those films that I've seen in, in my early age... Thus, it has been imprinted on me forever. But this is an amazing startup, even though the the problem might be totally here that this starts too suddenly. Freddy is introduced and shown too suddenly. But it does bring the audience to the film right away. To me, the yeah, like, like you said, Freddy is introduced too suddenly. When thinking about the themes of the film and, well, how the film itself works, it does manage to open with a bang. Like, I, I, I give it that much. It, it's a dynamic opening. But at the same time, well, the scenario that the opening presents, it's kind of interesting. The three kids being trapped into this bus that is swinging back and forth, almost falling off into the abyss while Freddy is slowly closing on them. That is really interesting scenario, but somehow I simply can't take the presentation here. Like, I I almost feel that this scene borders a line on being comedical, even though 
this might be one of the most horrific scenes in the film, seeing how you actually, in this scene, you actually can see the actress Joan Villette hurting herself by hitting her nose on the metal bar as the bus is winning. So there, there was a real life pain on this scene, but still somehow, you know, just, I, be- I, I, just I, I, better if you if you don't put so much effort to trying to bend this into a bad scene because it is one of the greatest scenes. I I, I watched this with with a friend of mine, and we both were actually laughing our asses off at this scene <laughs> because for some reason it simply came out as hokey. <laughs> Well, that's Freddy's mo. Still, like, you can take it, it, it like is. that it, if it you is, want. It is, but come on, man. When we were in the previous Nightmare episode, when we were talking about Part Three, you made the case that this was still supposed to be a horror film on this franchise before it became, it you is. know, a bunch of laughs and goofs. So exactly, yeah, that's what it is. So, when we get deeper into the film, so so I, I I'm almost saying that the opening scenario. It's it, it, it's more of a joke than a horror. They aim at horror, but they fall face down flat. And this is coming from a guy who is rooting for the third installation in this series, where that, 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 Freddy that, comes through a TV. And to you, dear listeners, that should be an inclination on exactly how bad this the second one is. You mean the third one? No, the second one. This one. The third one is where Freddy is coming from the TV that, and welcoming us to prime that time, is, bitch. That is, that is precisely. Thir- in third one, Freddy does that stunt. But I still, still feel that this film is so goddamn goofy, laughable and failing at horror that, yeah, even Freddy coming through TV is scarier than, you know, this fucking opening scenario here. Ha ha. <laughs> yeah, well, s- serve these comments when you are actually going to... Unpack them for our <laughs> listeners at the end. <laughs> but we come home and uh, somebody is screaming like a queen. Our scream queen for tonight, Mark Patton. I, and I suppose you already have a problem with that. I actually, I don't have a problem with that. I actually do love the parents' facial expression as, as Jesse wakes up from his nightmare. It's great. I, There's a lot of comedic value here. I, I also like incredibly a lot a shot following that parents reaction in which we see jesse i guess inserting his penis back into his boxers because it was loose what well because that's what people do when they wake up i, I don't know but I, I, I don't know about you man i don't know about the rest of the men in the world now you do but my penis is firmly intact in my body I, I don't have to wake up and put my penis in place, like insert into my ho- trousers, because it was laying next to me on the pillow while I was sleeping. Are you actually making the case that if you would see Freddy Krueger nightmares, you would not be kind of hot on Freddy Krueger every once in a while? I, I'm, making, some straightening. I, 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 I'm making the case that it, it looks like the penis has been loose. And Jesse just wakes up, grabs his penis and puts it in, back into his pants. It looks like well, that. Man. And I, 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 I've seen these weird horror films. I've seen Killer Condom, which has a living penis biting condom in it, wandering the streets of New York. But I have never seen a horror movie that has loosely wandering penis in it. Uh, uh, <laughs> this, this is an area where you have to tread carefully. <laughs> but 
I don't know about you, but I think in the morning you need to do some straightening for that thing. <laughs> well, it doesn't look like he's doing straightening either. It, it, it looks like he's actually trying to recapture a runaway penis. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ movie. <clears throat> but most importantly, it's made the point here that uh, it is hot as an oven in here. And the father, played by Klukulager, makes the point that absolutely nothing is wrong with that air conditioning. Just needs a shot of Freon. Except that Jesse is like totally sweating like crazy. But more, more notably, the, actually the point being made here is that this once again depicts more open time period where when you could, you didn't have to be that careful with your wording and the terms you use. Case in point, the Fu Manchus and scaringly casual racist fingers. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm talking Maybe about the God, God, explain. goddamn, you know, the cereal box. The f- I know, table, but what's the... wrong with the cereal box? Maybe I'm uh, well, missing some cultural context here. Well, I, I, I don't know. Maybe the green, slinty-eyed Chinaman in a cereal box named Fu Manchus. And inside you have these long nails which you can put on your fingertips. Like... Well, <laughs> does it make any difference? Maybe it could be Clue Man. Well, well it, it could be, you know, <laughs> but... I, I, I'm not it, aware that that, uh, that Asian people have long fingernails that are, that are red. It, but, it, uh, the long fingernails are kind of a racist stereotype that has been played upon the Asian people's expense for oh. quite some time. What the hell? It is. I mean, you know, you want another case in point, you know, simply go check out Big Trouble in Little China, or how was the title? Mm. But yeah, oh well. it, it is. Same way as is, you know, the long-running black beard, which they all are supposed to sport. Like, it is simple racial stereotyping, which actually has its roots in racist presentation of the Asian people. I like the chemistry that uh, Jesse and Lisa have when they leave with the car. It's already so visible. And Mark Patton has made the comment that they got along instantly and became great buddies. And there's a weird cut where we see first the car leave the home and then on the parking lot, just sitting there empty. I think this transition or this shot was completely unnecessary. It doesn't make any sense. They could have just cut from the car driving to this baseball scene. Doesn't it feel weird to you? First you're in the car and then you just show the empty car in the parking lot immediately. <laughs> I don't know. I I did not have a problem with that transition. Okay. For me it was kind of weird. But uh, baseball scene and we have more of this gay aspect shown or whatever you want to call it. But there is more this gay or male sexuality played in this film. When Grady grabs the pants of Jesse, and off they go. This may be the most casual male ass you have gotten in a horror movie for a long time. Um, there is the comment that it's a nice ass, so we will have to go with that. I take no part in this judgment. When it comes to male asses, I'm willing to leave, you know, the, cri- uh, the criticism to other people. You may score it as high as you like, I take no part in the process. I was just referring to the comment in the film. 
Well, also, you know, when it comes to that comment, I'm not willing to touch it with 10 feet pole. And when it comes to possible YouTube comments touching on the subject, I'm not actually willing to touch on that subject with a 10 feet pole hold by someone else. Poles and asses, be careful now. But there's more references. Are you getting any leads? He's my right to school. It's kind of trying to push the point that this is a gay character, but I don't even know if he is. I mean, he could as well be heterosexual for all we know. Well, no one in the fucking film actually knows whether or not the, the character of Jesse was gay. And that means in the film and also outside of it, like behind the scenes. Like I mentioned, the gay aspects of this film are kind of a mess, where everybody kind of makes a statement that something was gay and something was was simply a subtext and someone simply goofed around and the production crew didn't actually notice what they were doing before it was too late. So it's, it's impossible to say whether or not the character of Jesse is gay. Uh, this all started because the screenwriter thought that since it was kind of the gay revolutions going on, he found out that somebody being afraid of their sexuality was something that could be implemented in the film because he thought it was scary. Or so the screenwriter at least maintains. Like that, that is and, his story. And I can yeah. see the point there. I also can actually see the reasoning. And I, I'm not saying that, you know... Men being afraid their sexuality wouldn't work as a material for a horror film. Like, mm -hmm. like oh, okay, it's, it's, it's a good enough setup. I'm not sure what you're driving at here. So if that's not true, that it was just an aspect that he wanted to incorporate because it would be something scary. Are you trying to pull some other narrative why this was picked as a subtext? I'm, I'm not trying to pull any alternative narrative on the fact. I'm merely pointing out that that is simply one source which actually tells this perspective on what happened with the script and later but on it's the only him. source i guess at the end of the day uh, it kind of is it. it's it's it, at least it's the most direct source but this is also the source that actually maintains that all the homosexual aspects of the story were supposed to be subtext the film we are actually seeing at the moment kind of a contradicts this notion because where well, there is a homosexual text but it's not sub the least then again when people were seeing this not everybody was picking on the fact that there's a lot of these gay references and no. according to the docu documentary never sleep again europe picked up on this real quick but not every one of us for example i i didn't really think about it i i didn't realize it when i watched watched it as a teenager i just thought that okay Great, we get some male butt here, and and um, yeah. and I get. I guess this was like a sexually curious case when I was watching it, but I didn't think about it like that. Well, that it was laid out. That of course could be, but at the same time, the same interviews maintain and go to the record on this one that no one, absolutely fucking no one in the production crew actually realized how gay this would look. The director didn't realize it, the actors didn't realize it, 
the fucking script writer who had put the subtext in there in the first place didn't realize exactly how this was starting to shape up as the film was going on. The producers didn't realize it. Like, this is the whole goddamn filming crew doing something that is extremely gay in its presentation. And fucking no one picked up on this one? Really? Perhaps those were still the times when you people weren't exactly exposed to this kind of subtext, so could have just gone flying through everyone's head that they didn't notice it. And that actually could be like I am. Uh, I'm not trying to catch uh, anyone on a lie here. I'm not trying to make this case that the director and the rest of the production crew have been lying in their statements that they didn't realize how gay the film was looking at. But if that is true, and I am willing to go with the sentiment that it is, it also means that this is actually grade A fucking up that we are looking at. This is the whole production crew, the entire fucking production house fucking up. Fucking up what exactly? Fucking up basically the themes of the film. Because that that the gay text is not what they are driving at. Some of these scenes actually play out pretty laughably. Most notably the Jesse's dance scene. In what is supposed to be a serious horror film that has no intended gay text in it. And all of a sudden we have a actually pretty laughable scene which is incredibly gay. So I would say that, yeah, that's screwing up on the production house's side. I always saw it just as something very awkward that somebody would do when they're in their own privacy and rudely interrupted. Haven't you pushing with your ass your boxes every once in a while? Shaking your ass as you do it. Waving, well, waving, yeah. waving whatever that wooden thing was as your penis and popping it off. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I never did that shit. Oh. I, I don't know the rest of the world, but yeah. Yeah, I'm stranger to that buffoonery. And once again. I am no stranger to buffoonery. I, I have to admit I haven't gone as far as he goes here, but I am no stranger to stupid dancing buffoonery. Dancing and doing this stuff, they are two different realms. And once again, once again, the production crew has maintained it, that also in this scene, the homosexual aspects were not intended. What they were trying to do, they were trying to copy Tom Cruise's dancing scene in the film Risky Business. And I'm, I'm once again, I'm completely willing to believe that that was what they were aiming at. But that also means that. You know, the Jesse's dancing scene mm. in Nightmare on Elm Street falls flat on its face because it's nothing like Tom Cruise's dancing scene. Like this is this is a bad version of it. Well, if you just remove the what they had in mind context and just think of it as a scene. I mean it's uh, it's awkward, but it's also really funny, I have to admit. I I, I don't know. I kind of cringed when I saw it. Right. I was kind of like, oh my god, oh, oh, no, just, just stop. <laughs> it, it's great to see Jesse kind of surviving that scene. Like, <clears throat> how, how, do we nor- how do we normalize this situation here? It, it, it's kind of a great to see Mac Patton as an actor surviving that scene. <laughs> but yeah, we have one of the several 
dreams. I believe this is kind of the second one on the line, let's say. The scene where Jesse wakes up in the dream and or whatever it is and breaks the glass in the fridge then goes outside and notices that somebody's doing some something in the cellars then goes back and tries to hold the door so that he doesn't get out of there and uh, runs straight into Fred Krueger one of the most iconic scenes of this series daddy can't help you now it, it is one of the better scenes of the film it... yeah it's a great like immediate confrontation out of nowhere and there they are, face to face, and Freddy explaining the whole plot. There's great dialogue here. Also having kind of gay subtext. You've got the body, I've got the brain. Yeah, and... Okay, I I am I have been giving this movie a lot of shit up until this point, but I, I have to confess, I actually really like this scene. I, and I think this is one of the best horror scenes of the film. Like, this is where the tension mm-hmm. and the dread really play off magnificently. I love that, you know, close-up shot on Freddy's eyes. I love the line, you got the body, I got the brains. What? Yeah. Yeah, I I do have a problem with, well, what is happening in the scene, or what it means to the movie, because I never was the biggest fan of the direction that the film takes, where Freddy changes that dream killer thing into this possession stuff. That is also one one of the aspects I do not like in this film. I don't like the possession narrative. And maybe this is where we differ hugely because I'm a big fan of this narrative. That they actually had the balls to mix it up a little and not do the same thing all over again. Freddy has different realms here. There is a lot of arguments that have been thrown that they are breaking some Wes Craven golden rules here or whatever. I think that's total bullshit. They are in a sense. Let let me try with this one argument. There is an argument floating around that oh J- Jesse can't see these dreams because he has no experience with Fred Krueger whatsoever, so he would not be able to see any dreams about him. But that doesn't make any sense. That's how Nightmare on Elm Street, the first part, starts. There is no touching point for the kids to Fred Krueger. He just starts appearing in their dreams. Uh, pr- precisely. Somehow. Precisely. Yeah. Then there is the second argument that they're breaking the Wes Craven code here by allowing Fred Krueger come face to face with a crowd of people, meaning the pool scene later on. We're jumping here a bit, but whatever. Yeah, that that is uh, the more notorious of these two sat- statements, and that is the one that actually is, is the bigger statement of these two. This is a problem that Wes Craven himself ha- has raised with the film, this is a problem that Robert England has raised with the film, and this is even the problem that the producers themselves have raised with this film. And I will say that they are completely wrong with that whole thing. Um, First, uh, Fre- Fred Krueger has just confronted Lisa, and Fred Krueger is in this scene trying to get some more fear out of the confrontation from Lisa to grow further and remove Jesse from his being. But he's not able to convince Lisa to believe in him quite, so what he does is he loses 
bunch of his energy, but well, he is then able to resurface at the pool, and what would be a better location than the pool to feed on, like the big crowd of crying and uh, terrified people. And then there is the other thing that you have to consider that maybe this entire film is a dream, because quote-unquote at the end of the movie, when the friend of Lisa makes the statement that that was a great party, thank you Lisa. So it's making the case that nobody was dying, I don't think it would have been a great party if there actually would have been a bunch of people murdered. So it's like removing the whole what happened. Actually the point you raise up about Lisa's friends making the statement that it was a great party is, I, I guess it would be the best defense against the argument that has been made that the pool scene breaks the golden rules. Uh, from the interviews that I've been following, the way how I've understood it is that the main problem with the pool scene is that one of the Wes Craven's rules was that Freddy can only exist in, in the dreams. That he, can, no, he, but he that, cannot that, exit, exit a dream world to our world. Even and... The, that's exactly, sorry, but the, that's the thing that the first nightmare then does immediately at the end of the it, film. It does. It, it does. And uh, this, this is... Or, this is... Or, it, or it doesn't, if you if you want to consider that the first nightmare as well is only a dream, which is kind of suggested by the ending. It, it is, but then again, once again... Uh, but then again, we have to also remember that the final ending of the first one was tacked on you know, on the demand of the producer Robert Shea. It was not Wes Craven's original intent to have that last jump scare shot in the first film. And that is the yeah. biggest problem which that I have had with this notion of Wes Craven's golden rules. Because the entire franchise... Every Freddy film, including the first one, which was Wes Craven's own film, has always kind of played fast and loose with all these rules. Freddy mm. can only ex- exist in the dreams, except Nancy deliberately goes into a dream to pull him into the real world, where he was not supposed to exist, and and the dude have has knives on his fingers but somehow not believing him completely defeats him and like yeah 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 the rules yeah, themselves are not consistent in any of the films and that was uh, is also something that Jack Shoulder the director here in part 2 has been pointing out and something that he has used to excuse that some of the decisions he makes in this film, yeah. because he also felt that the rules are so loose and they are not tight enough to actually demand him to follow any of these quote-unquote golden rules. And I can respect him for that. And kind of like he- Henrik, Jack Shoulder wasn't the biggest fan of the first film, for whatever reason, no, on his part. Yeah, no, he, no, he wasn't. He, he didn't like it. And in contrast, Wes Craven felt that this film's script was inferior to the script of the original. Wes Craven was not a fan of, of, of Freddy's Revenge. Yeah, well, Wes Craven did bring the point why he didn't like it, but I will get to that right after I have made one important point about the arguments against the, the or losing the golden rules or whatever the case is. 
the pool scene, the infamous pool scene. First of all, just like like in the first nightmare, uh, when the film is running, you still don't know that this whole film could potentially be all a dream. And the same in Nightmare 2. So you have to assume at the pool scene that Freddy has now materialized to the real world. And because he has, you know, the rules have rules have changed. Wes Craven is making the point that in the dream world he can be haunting only the one that he's at that point haunting. But coming into the real world, uh, well, yeah, it has changed the whole rule set. Yeah, that that he kind of maybe ends up doing. And funnily enough, this pool scene is actually one of the most creepiest scenes in the entire film. It has one of the most interesting shots at at Fred Krueger when the the fire is in the forefront and you have the close up on Freddy making these scary faces towards the parents. That is some creepy shit, and that's one of the arguments why Elm Street Two is. Is not kidding around. It's really serious shit horror at times. Like you said, at times. I I also like that shot. I also like the shot when Freddy faces the crowd of uh, kids and says the line, "You are all my children now." I think that is great stuff. I also still am not a fan of the scene as a whole. Okay, well, you will see in quick categories what will happen. It might be interesting. <laughs> oh, about the Wes Craven and his golden rules. Yeah, when he's talking about that, he's talking about the Dreamworld rules, I believe. I, I, I get, my take has been that he's talking about some general rules. L- like as, mm. like mentioned, it's very hard to actually follow these rules and be completely sure what rules Wes Craven himself is talking about because. Because nobody follows the rules to a letter in these films. Like everybody ends up breaking in some way or form at least some of the rules. Including Wes Craven himself. Yeah, that's true. The first 40 or 45 minutes of the film do have problems in a way. We do have a lot of scenes that are completely kind of not fitting together there it's just something that happens and then some another occurrence of horror happens then again something horrific happens but there is nothing like building up and they are not connected and this is what was Wes Craven's one of the issues that he mentioned in the documentary and that I understand there's a lot of random things that just happen and in many cases more problematically, they have nothing to do with Fred Krueger himself, or at least he is not on the forefront. He's just making these things happen. For example, the bird exploding. Uh, that, yeah, that that much is true. There, there is a lot of stuff which which Fred Krueger is pulling throughout the film, like for example the exploding bird. But yeah, it, it's it's stuff that. You kind of first of all, you don't see actually Fred Krueger in those scenes. It's it's simply a, a parody that starts to act up all of a sudden and then self explodes. There is also well, since we just were hamping about the fucking rules, there's once again the point that this apparently happens while 
people are awake. But at the same time, I, I guess the birds were sli- at sleep, which could kind of, um, if we go by Wes Craven's rules, explain how it would kind of work. Like Freddy, um, yeah, Freddy attacks yeah. the bird in the dream. But w- once again, it kind of leads you into a hotspot scenario where the bird is affected, but at the same time, through the bird, also the waking world is affected. So. Freddy kind of can affect the world around him, the real Via world. Jesse. Yeah, and by possessing a bird and possessing people's left and right. There is, of course, the point that in a way you don't perhaps need to connect these scenes so much because it's just Freddy feeding on the fear, uh, which is in a way weird sometimes because you're fearing about your pet birds at this moment but somehow through this fear well i i think this film is the most about the battle against the fear once again building the fear then not fearing him and what he's doing and you get rid of him even though he just appears out of thin air people don't know anything about him but he is there to be feared first Uh, that it is that it is this when it comes to the main film with the first film's point that it is about fearing Fred Krueger and by abandoning that fear you can overcome him yeah the, the second one also stays true to that point since once again it's all about certain characters in the story not overcoming their fear of Fred Krueger and that uh, is per- how how he is in the end defeated Perhaps more horrifying in the bird scene is the fact that the birds are putting the cage under this sheet and the the father has just made the notion how there's 90 Fahrenheit or 36 Celsius degrees and don't you think that the animals would go completely wacko under a sheet at that temperature? And they do. And they do. And maybe it started to be so hot that one of them just combusted who knows i mean in the in, in the original in the original concepts and the original set design that was ma- made for this scene and the effects that were created i've understood that there was supposed to be this strange mutant parody which was supposed to attack the family in in this scene but they ended up ditching it because it looked too goofy and went this more realistic parakeet version, which actually is a bird puppet tied to a string, tied to a stick, basically. And it, it, it does kind of a, once again muddle the waters exactly why did this happen. With, with the mutant parakeet, you could have easily noticed that something really is off. And made the connection that this is once again some Fred Krueger shit. But with this more realistic looking bird. You kind of like, like you can do what you just did. You can raise up the point that the bird went insane simply because of the heat inside the house. Yeah, it's easy to read this or not understand this if you do not think about it as a possession film. For example, the snake in the classroom. For example, the birds. And all kinds of different animals doing weird shit in this film. There is certain biblical imagery in there. 
in place in, in, in form of these animal characters. Like for example the snake from from the Adam Adam and Eve storyline. And in a way, if you think about it, with possession or not without possession or witchcraft or such, it is still a funny scene because kind of nothing is going on. And it, it it's the, also uh, in it, funny also in the sense like <clears throat> in the same sense as the opening scene and. Joan Villette's accident on the set because actually there's the mo- moment when Mr. Walsh gets hit by the bird and gets that wound in his face and that actually also was accidental and the actor Gulager suffered a permanent scar as a result of a of a bad prop. Yeah, true fear at the set. A- at least for that man. And those girls in the bus. And those girls in the bus. There's a discussion on the school corridor that uh, in the last party there was only played Benny Goodman records by the father all night long. I suppose it's Benny Goodman that plays also in the beginning of this particular party. If I remember correctly, there was no Benny Goodman song in this film. Oh, okay. I'm not 100% certain about that statement. I don't remember seeing any Benny Goodman song mentioned in amongst the songs of the film. Okay. The notion that the father makes about the exploding bird that he's trying to put the blame on his son is absolutely incredible. Of course, we do not know why or what has happened prior, and that's kind of the problem. There's talk about firecrackers. Definitely his character doesn't seem like the guy who would, as a joke, put any firecrackers anywhere, but apparently he has, maybe, but looking at the act of this father, he could just be pulling that right out of his anus. Uh, Also taking a note that, well, you, well, the firecracker could explain the bird exploding, even though it would be impossible for Jesse to, you know, light the fuse on the cracker since they are extremely short so Jesse would not have any room of an opportunity to use firecrackers but even with that out of the way firecrackers do not in any way explain how you know the rest of the behavior of the bird like like the notion that Jesse somehow caused this or this is Jesse's doing it like you said it's it's completely out of the father's ass because it's impossible for Jesse in any way to pull this off which is kind of sad what happens between these characters at this moment because when you first see them in the morning kitchen scene there's this moment where the dad says something like nobody likes a wise ass boy and uh, they share this kind of a look this cunning look from from Jesse is followed by this statement. So they have this kind of a playful thing going on and they understand each other. But now this kind of destroys that. Yep. Uh, this, of course, once again, is somewhat of a horror movie trope. The teenage main heroes, the main characters, and the authority, which is ununderstanding. And in their ununderstandingness, they actually present a physical danger to the teenagers. In in here is it's Jesse's father who doesn't understand and believe Jesse 
and blames his son for everything and to appoint also the coach Snyder. And this is kind of the similar kind of characters as in the first one, the parents who also didn't believe their kids and were in fact the reason for how Freddy Krueger existing and also like the authorial figures in the next film, part three, where once again they everyone in the psychiatric hospital don't believe the kids and once again through this act end up putting the kids in danger. But back here shit Henrik we're going to Don's place. The gay bar scene of this film. Homosexuality was not intended in this film. It was purely accidental. Just as the case where the coach is going to appear there in leather and Oh shit yeah. And Henrik, Henrik, what is going on here? All right, the the music is amazing. It's so goofy. I wanted, I still, I was using my Soundhound to try to make it recognize what is this track because it's so awesome. It could be from some kind of porn film. I don't know. I'm addicted to this song. But but how in the hell does the coach get him to the school and? For what purpose exactly? <laughs> I, I I don't realize that. I was wondering that exact same point myself. Like, uh. like the, the coach bullying Jesse during the school hours. That makes sense. Like, in that moment, the coach has power over Jesse. But this is night time. They are both off duty. So, so how can the coach force Jesse back to school to run laps in that gymnasium and which and why what is the purpose of this i know i know henrik mystery revealed yeah because because we do need a horror scene where there's a coach naked and being attacked by a bunch of balls (laughs) once again once again and i do maintain i do maintain the everybody in the production has come out and said that the K overtones were not intended. No, no, never happened. Yeah, this is accidental. So it's accidental. Also, you could you could read this in different way, of course. You could make the case once again that all of this is a dream, at least from the gay bar forwards. None of this happened, but somehow Schneider still dies. Somehow, yeah. And speaking of Snyder's death, you know, being an avid horror fan, I, I've seen a lot of weird shit in horror movies. But this must be my first, probably the only time I've actually seen a horror movie trying to actually pull off ass banking as a legit horror scenario. (laughs) The film is most definitely breaking new grounds here. (laughs) That it does. And by the way, the only way that I can think of why Jesse is even, why he's even following this Schneider guy there is that he's holding Jesse at gunpoint and forcing him to do this running around so that he can get some sexual pleasure out of that. He's still, mind you, dressed in this leather outfit and maybe he's about to rape Jesse, who knows. (laughs) Does not end up saying very nice things about a possible gay character in the film. Um, Rape I would still kind of a hard and touchy subject. Just saying. I would still say that this is a pro LGBT film. Uh, yes. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a, on a defense on that notion. 
or you could take it as neutral in making any kind of statements about it. At least it's bringing this this subject to the foreground, not to subtext. And there's there's something to discuss here. There is something to discuss about the LGBT aspects of this film. That much is for certain. Yeah, well, the case is though that many LGBT so-called members of this private club um, do enjoy Nightmare on Elm Street 2 because of this. And more power to them for that one. You know, if 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 you are gay, if you are a member of the LGBT community, you know, and, and you enjoy this film, if, if you find this film empowering, you know, by all means, go ahead. I, I'm not trying to take the film away from you in any sense that's that's not what i'm aiming at with my points and my problems with the film the film doesn't though outright state anything that the coach would be doing some harm for jesse other than making him him run lapses for no goddamn reason so i'm just pulling this out of my head so it's not necessarily making any kind of statement no no it's not no it's not not at least in that regard like when it comes yeah. to the coach scene, it's simply completely weird scene that happens. Uh, it, there is, I too saw some of the rapey aspects in the scene, like you did when you raised the point that that may have been something that the coach was aiming at. But like you also pointed out, the film does not make the case that that was actually what the coach was planning on. Probably not, because the coach is smoking while Jesse is taking the shower. Most most likely not. Most likely he was simply being asshole and wanted to, you know, force Jesse to run laps. It doesn't make any sense at all, but but most likely that was what was going on. What also doesn't make sense is that when Jesse is taken back to home by the police or the guards, Jesse is completely unwilling to discuss what is going on still to his father or anyone anybody even to lisa the father asks the question quite rightfully so actually in this situation are you taking any drugs and he's not taking any drugs father no but but he, he offers no alternative explanation he at no point of this film except in the very last minutes does jesse try to explain his situation to absolutely fucking anyone and that is really fucking stupid from Jesse's end, since basically every other character in the film is actually asking Jesse what's wrong. Then again, what are you going to answer to this question? Oh, you know, at my nightmares I'm followed by this lunatic who is coming into my dreams and coming into the real world and killing everybody through me. That And that is a solid point to make. Jesse's predicament is is of such that it's not easy to explain and most likely anyone who Jesse would try to explain what the hell is going on would not end up believing him. But it also, it still kind of leads into this notion where Jesse just kind of waits only to see what happens to him. Even Jesse himself does not try to understand mm. his situation and doesn't try to fight against it. It ends up being Lisa who does all the major research in the film concerning Freddy Krueger, concerning Jesse's status, and Lisa is actually the one who manages to 
put one and one together and realize how to defeat Freddy Krueger. Jesse makes no no effort. Jesse also at no point tries to in any way explain what is happening around him or even give an excuse. Jesse simply locks up and stays silent in every given situation. And this kind of makes Jesse a sleepwalker throughout the scenario of the film. Perhaps, but like Jesse states, and I really do enjoy this dialogue, for example, at Grady's room, where Jesse is trying his very, very best to explain the situation, but all he can kind of mother out is, I think I'm losing my mind, and I'm not sure what the fuck is going on, but can you just help me out here and not let me sleep? So I really did enjoy that scene. It's like, it's probably what would happen in real life. How do you put this thing together? Because it doesn't make any goddamn sense. Yeah, that that much is true. And it, it is a great scene. But It is, and uh, you are making also a good point that uh, Jesse is not really trying on his part to, to make this situation any better. Like, there are some subtle hints that may, oh, maybe you should go see a psychiatrist or the mother and father are discussing about it in the yard but it's never going to come to anything and even when he notices that via him fred fred krueger has killed somebody he just simply escapes the scene but um yeah and kind of, what, kind of a then again yeah what do you do in this situation I don't know, I I might be actually trying to do some detective work. I might try to limit my abilities to walk freely, to kind of keep myself from hurting others in the future. Like, Jesse simply returns back to school and continues as normal after Schneider gets killed and after he learns about Schneider's death. You know, I actually do not like the fact that Lisa is the one who shows Jesse the way that this thing is done. You know, it just crossed my mind right now that it could have worked way better if Jesse actually, like you said, would have done some pre-detective work and then Lisa would notice this and kind of join Jesse in following Jesse to solve this mystery once and for all. Instead, what happens is that Lisa completely is onboarded it from the day one, that Okay, so you're just followed by this this uh, burned-out guy who actually died already and killed children, and now he's following you via your dreams and killing people via you. So, okay, makes perfect sense. We read the diary, and I completely believe you, and justified him. I know exactly what to do here. Yep. That's being a way too good girlfriend. Way too good girlfriend, and also seeing how how Jesse himself is the one who is in most danger, as he is the one who is being possessed. It kind of makes Jesse a complete slacker, since Jesse doesn't try to do anything to defend himself. And the moment that Lisa starts to do this detective work, or help Jesse and completely believe in him, is the moment when he comes soaked in blood to her room. And then, instead of noticing that Jesse is probably a complete lunatic, no, no, I'm going to follow with this Fred Krueger idea. Yup, that also. Yeah. This scene where the father and mother are trying to ask from Jesse what is wrong before he enters his car at 38 and 34, this is an interesting part of dialogue, uh, in which if you would remove 
the whole Fred Krueger aspect and re- replace it with being unsure about your sexuality or hiding your sexuality, the dialogue would still work in the situation. It would make the dad a complete asshole, even more so, but you could change it like that. There, There is... Yeah, there is some scenes where the dialogue really kind of a, it has been noted that there there was a that the gay elements were supposed to be a subtext and this gay side of Jesse's character was meant to be a subtext and I can really see that coming through in some of the dialogue in this film. Like there there is like you mentioned there is some dialogue where if Freddy Krueger would be taken out of the equation the dialogue that Jesse uses could very well be simply him trying to explain and understand his own sexual awakening. Okay, so morning and school. Schneider is dead. And then there is the rope girl dream. I I love how they fit the slow motion and singing mouth movements together in this slow motion scene. It's a beautiful scene. It's kind of explains the next target of Jesse. I take it as that. It does highlight the next target. To me, it mostly reads simply as franchise mandatory. We have to insert the Freddy rhyme here somehow. And this is the best we can game up with. Because this is also the only time in the film when you actually get the rhyme. Which is also something that became stable in the franchise. Yeah, however randomly you want to see this scene appearing here. I enjoy the lighting here. It's really dreamlike. It's really creepy and nothing makes sense. Well, I, I am with you on that one. It it does manage to pull off that dreamlike feeling and, and the atmosphere of a dream. Yeah, especially the lighting on Jesse's face. Well, well, then we have the morning discussion. Once again, we spend uh, quite a lot of time in this kitchen, by the way. Uh, the, the dad knew nothing about the evil house he just bought, cliche. He's brought up. This happens in every goddamn film. Ever since The Shining, I guess. Would it be Amityville? Or, or Amityville, yeah. Yeah, hard, hard to say when was the la- first time when dad once again brought a house that has a has a checkered <laughs> hi- history which he knew about but never actually bothered to tell anyone. Yeah, it's always the dad, master of the house. Yeah, goddamn dads. Yeah, well, he totally deserves the exploding toaster. But once again, one of those moments which do not really make sense and they do not include Freddy per se. These types of scenes, in a way, are redundant. Like, you really didn't need this. And this is kind of uh, awkward. It wasn't even plugged on. Mmm, yup. It's a hor- horror trope, at least now. A- at least now, and I-, I get what they are trying to do, like they are trying to showcase you the building of the tension and and these weird happenings and give you this sense of dread as, as all of this weird stuff simply happens around the house yeah. and around Jesse, but... Yeah, the scene doesn't really work. If you're able to kind of see this as kind of an amityville house, then you are more accepting towards exploding toasters in Elm Street. I, I guess but... that could help, but it's not a great scene even with that. Uh, yeah, it, It's kind of a problem. clumsy as a scene. And I also was kind of a surprised that 
now the father was not blaming Jesse for the flaming toaster. Like the parody right. is obviously where Jesse pulling off some prank, but now when there is the now when the toaster catches fire, which is way more easier stunt to pull off for Jesse, now the father is okay that it was just a fe- weird accident. Like pick up your yeah. fucking mind, man. <laughs> we get to the old power plant now at the forty-three minutes mark. Only now Jesse is, Jesse is starting to confront the problems in any way. So it definitely took its time. Then again, if, like stated, if you enjoy this Amityville approach, if you take any modern horror film, like things like Conjuring, and Freddy worked at this old power plant and killed 20 kids here. The girl Lisa is totally into believing that Jesse, Jesse has some magic psychic powers like make a connection lisa is buying this too easily way too easily she is and And once again lisa is actually the one pushing jesse to follow any kind of a clues this is this is once again this is lisa doing the detective work lisa tracking jesse by the hand to the power plant in order to try to make jesse to do even something in this situation and yeah, the way that the role has been, like, that what they are supposed to do as characters here is really weird. It's kind of the other way around that I would do it. It's other way around how it was done in the previous film, where it was the main main character. Yeah. It, it, it was Nancy who was doing all the detective work and pulling yeah. this stuff together. Quite right. They shook it up, but they kept the girl doing the same tasks here. And I kind of get it in a sense that that was also a horror movie trope. Maybe even today still is that the female character is the in the end the kind of the main main character and the focal point character of the film. And since they switch it up here, making the male character the main. They, they gender swapped the character position, but they didn't re- really figure out how to implement that on what every character is supposed to do. Like they 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 gender swapped the characters, but but the character role still stayed the same. Jesse may be the main character, but the most active character in the story is still the female one, Lisa. In a sense, it uh, gives more. For Lisa to do and gives more reason for Lisa to exist as a character. It does, and it it does in a sense it it does create more kind of a stable mechanic between two characters in the film, where yeah. where it's not one person show this time around and everybody else is simply hanging around. At least there now is is a main character and the proactive character. The element that is mentioned here several times for Lisa is the aspect of love that she has so much love for Jesse that she is motivated to help until the very end and believe in Jesse and I I kind of like that it's a love against evil I I like the theme I don't like the execution at the end right okay we will see that soon you know this is one of my favorite scenes in the film when when Grady is stuffed with <laughs> mouthful of food throughout the scene, it's always full of food, even when he leaves the table. And he manages to say that he can't come to the party because he's because, grounded for some. For, yeah. he's, 
pushing grounded his because grandmother through. down the stairs. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, but that's so absurd. It, it is. It, it's kind of taking that whole teenage rebellion thing a tad bit too far. It's like somebody just came up with this line and thought that it was so absurd and just let's use it. Yeah. And there's the friend of Lisa, the girl character, and when she sits down, he, she actually says, Hi, Ronnie. Who the fuck is Ronnie? Is there a Ronnie in the table? No. I, 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 I guess Ronnie is simply some piece of meat that just exists in the film. Maybe it could be the character that is out, outside of the screen, but uh, it was like he, she was addressing Grady here. Did they fuck up the character names here? I don't know. That's what it looks like to me. Anyway, it's party time. Mr. Wonderful is already there playing jazz or Benny Goodman. Lisa's dark friend has kind of a funny boyfriend. That that face that he makes he's he's all he's all game face on when the like the dark haired girl character is with the boyfriend and then they just like glide away from the frame that grin on his face it's amazing and that happens at 50 10 this guy is such a player look at that guy so happy ah yeah. and then it's time for cabana and sexy time a little tongue is included quite a lot of it at this point it's kind of maybe getting that irritating that jesse is not exposing anything to lisa about what's happening but once again i'm not sure if i would be doing any better job at this point but I would be doing some detective work. Well, at least Jesse leaves the party as he sees that he's losing control and finally tries to actually get some help, outside help to his situation by asking Grady to watch him if he starts to transform. Like, granted, this is at the end of the film, so we are closing in on the end credits pretty soon here when Jesse finally starts to do these things, but well, at least we finally reached that moment. Yeah, and it's party time. There's a lot of really funny music in this film. They switch the tape, and it's Bobby Orlando's whisper to a scream. This freaking 80s vibes are coming out through the speakers. But okay, okay, let's just get to the gayest scene of this film already. With this wonderful dialogue. <laughs> He's inside me, and he wants to take me again. He's a really good actor, really, really doing it. Well, I I do tip my hat for both of the actors for the fact that they actually managed to say these lines with a straight face. Yeah, what was the line? Well, there is a whole yeah, there... bunch of them. Yeah, I gotta look it up. There's something inside of me, and last night it made me go into my sister's room, and tonight with Lisa in the cabana, it started happening again. I think you're seriously losing it, bro. I'm scared, Grady. Something is trying to get inside my body. Yeah, and she's a female and she's waiting for you in the cabana. <laughs> and you want to sleep with me. Yeah, like, truly hilarious dialogue. The way that this uh, Freddy's entry into the real world is executed took a whole lot of preparation. Was there, like, all of those shots basically taken from that are a different effect? It is. Uh, at least 
if we are to believe the effect crew of the film, and why wouldn't we? So yeah, every uh, every shot in the transformation scene when Freddy finally bursts out of Jesse is a different effect. And prepared for 11 weeks. Whenever I think about this film, this is the scene that comes to my mind immediately. This most definitely exemplifies the, the film. It's an iconic moment. I think it's executed really well. It's not It's not really goofy. It's great. Uh, no, it comes I, together. It is very well put horror scene. And that is actually the scene that the defenders of the film most often come back to. Like, the, the yeah. common argument is that if that you, you start the discussion by saying that you don't like Nightmare on Elm Street 2, and the common defense is that how can you not like the film that has this shot, that has this yeah. gore shot in it, unless you saw the cut version from which all the violence was taken out of. So this is kind of a, the go-to scene when it comes to Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Yeah, I do remember watching the first one and the second one shown in the late 90s in Finnish TV and those were definitely not cut as far as I remember and this scene was fully shown. I got the full terror at a very young age and I'm happy I did. When it comes to Fred Krueger's makeup here, it's intentionally different and it's also done by another makeup artist because the original one was not available for the film. He wanted to give a little bit of a like a witch quality, this more bone structure quality to Fred. And I kind of like that he looks a little bit different in every film, even though at the end of the series he starts to get more and more shitty makeup. Here it still looks like it's actual flesh. I mean, they actually made some effort for this makeup. You know, it it's wet, it's looks, it looks like it's breathing, but you look at something like Freddy's dead, well, yeah, Freddy's totally dead as a character there and if if you follow Kevin Yeagers who made the Freddy's makeup for this film his comments and you contrast them with the comments of the of the remake it's kind of, kind of interesting to take a notion on what happened in regard of the makeup because Jaeger and the remake in both make the case that when they were designing Freddy Krueger's makeup, they were th- going through these these burn victim manuals to see what the third degree burns would look like on a person, and they draw inspiration mm. from those images of real life burn victims to understand kind of how to design the makeup, and the makeup between between this one. And the remake is noticeably different, even though the source material was supposed to be very much the same. Like, once again, real-life bur- images of real-life burn victims. Mm. So you get two completely different versions from the same source material. And many have noted that the Freddy makeup in the remake looks absolutely horrendous. It's one of the, mo- I guess, most hated Freddy makeups in the franchise. Yeah, didn't didn't like it. It works here, even though in the originals, I believe the inspiration was also a pepperoni pizza. In original, yeah. So this once again, like the like with the case of remake, this aims to be more realistic. 
portrayal of what Freddy would look like since he has been burned to death. Finally, Lisa and Jesse meet in the house back after Grady is now dead. When Freddy appears from behind the desk, I think it's also one of the amazing moments. Props also for the sound design, because <laughs> there is this uh, kind of interesting sound when the knife hands touch the desk. It's a really strong <laughs> sound. It always kind of freaked me out. And he can't fight me. I'm here. Once again, this kind of a poltergeist type of shit is happening. The doors are locking themselves. Uh, yeah, and Freddy, once again, I would like to say goofs around. Except, well, everything that happened seems to be accidental on Freddy's part. Like, Freddy starts attacking Lisa and Lisa hits him with a lamp. And Freddy falls completely over and then Freddy bites Lisa's leg for some reason and tries to stab her leg and misses the hit, gets his glove stuck on the floor and finally in anger to showcase all his terrible force, smashes a decorative plate. It's perhaps, yeah, once again one of my favorite scenes. I don't think it's very goofy. What was perhaps goofy was when you see Lisa kicking Freddy into the face. Freddy's, <laughs> Freddy looks like he's waiting for that hit. Yeah, kind of, yeah. And I like how the blades on his hand have kind of connected to his real hand. He doesn't even have the glove there anymore. It's just part of his body. It's kind of cool. I, I really like when he's kicking the blades on the floor. He's really pissed off here with a style. And he's really creepy. <laughs> So the legendary serial killer and dream lord finally makes his big entrance and he breaks a plate. Like yeah, he kicks it with style. Uh, it's great choreography. Yeah. <laughs> it's made even more stupid only by the fact that it, it is followed by the shot where Freddy misses the stabbing of Lisa's leg. Like... <sighs> Isn't this dude supposed to be some kind of a grand slasher villain, like the master of craft of killing? And, uh, and similar, it, uh, so, so similar stuff happens throughout the series. I don't know it, 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 why to it, pick exactly that one. Well, the reason is that, once again, you made the point how this is still one of those horror staple entries of the franchise. Like, it, it goes stupid after this, right? Yeah, it's it's the last good nightmare film. Yeah, and I'm seeing all this fucking around here. What? what? Like, <laughs> Come like, on, it's thank, ho- it's horrifying. Thank, and, thank, uh, thank God, why, you know, that, that massive wall of kids that are in the party makes all these goofy mistakes, like running straight at Freddy. Because that is the only way how Freddy can even score a few kills here. Wow, I don't know what to say. I mean, this Lisa running away from Freddy in this scene is totally creepy. I mean, it doesn't have the best choreography. But what's new? It's horror film from the 80s. What are you expecting exactly? I don't know, but Maybe not you're, this. You're... Not this. Like, Freddy kind of looks like a screw-up. Actually, I, I think it looks really tense and fast and I, i'm not sure what you're complaining about I, 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 missing I, I, missing freddy missing here it's quite fast tempoed 
fighting. It, it, it may be fast-tempoed fighting, but Freddy actually doesn't achieve anything. Like, this is supposed to be some kind of a legendary serial killer or something. And yeah. Well, the well, new you... dude does manage to pull off a really mean breaking a plate here. Yeah, yeah. yeah he... There is no Jesse. I'm Jesse now. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. Managed to kill, a, kill off a plate. Good job, Freddy. It's just a added effect which heightens the terror. Why wouldn't you kick a plate if you were Fred Krueger? No, I would kill a kid. Actually, I, I would kill a teenager at that point. I would be actually pissed because Lisa is, refuses to believe in the illusion of Fred Krueger. Really kind of flesh and blood illusion, I have to say. But he's pulling back from that and making Fred very angry throughout the last minutes of the film. So that would merit some plate kicking, I'm just saying. But he loses enough energy too that he has to momentarily take a commercial break and reapproaches at the pool, as mentioned. We have talked about the pool quite a bit here. I, I'm not sure what to add, but it's a great scene. And I have no problem whatsoever with Well, I Freddy attacking several people because the execution with those particular shots is so good that it works. So, Wes Craven, I'm sorry, but uh, your theory is not needed here. I, I don't know. You know, when, when it comes to ending of this film, I, I simply got a laugh out of it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You mean the pool scene or what happens I, later? I, I, I mean... I mean, Jesse appearing at Lisa's house, making the most bitch that no face and hand wave at Lisa, then re-emerging as Freddy, missing every shot at Lisa, then breaking outside, managing to kill only three people before vanishing into the final confrontation. Have you taken into account that this is still not a Fred Krueger who is completely in control of himself he does even hesitate to kill the guy at the pool he just throws him away at the end after taking a moment to consider it this is a jesse still inside and we have to give it that much of a excuse yeah that's what the film is aiming at that confrontation between fred and jesse inside of jesse's body sure i i get it i get it but you know it to me, it still mostly plays as as chokey chokes most of the time. Hmm. Okay. Much also like the final confrontation between Freddy and Lisa. To which we get, and one of the most bitched about aspects here is the dogs with the faces. And I'm here to tell you that you are all being quite ridiculous. It's once again... Now Freddy's very desperate attempt to scare Lisa so that he can pull off more energy and to win her so that he can become a whole Freddy. That's the point that the film is making. I'm not making this myself. So he has to send these creepy dogs. And at the end Lisa doesn't believe in them. That's how she's able to pass. You're making a complaint about the how they look. I don't have a problem with those. I think they are creepy. I'm not Works. making a complaint about the dogs. No, I, I think the dogs are one of the better elements of the film. Well, that's news to hear. Yeah. Fresh, fresh news. Maybe you could make an argument why Lisa is so sure that Fred will reappear at the factory. 
but I think that also makes kind of sense. Either, yeah. What else are you gonna do? Yeah. Yeah, I mean the script has to end someplace, and that is the only place yeah. that has been highlighted. So yeah, why not? No. I also do like the scene where the ants are eating away Lisa's leg, but then she notices that they don't really exist. Yeah, that's an okay stunt. Kind of, kind of a lesser showcase of Freddy's powers, but yeah. Well, he's desperate at this point. Well, he is something. And uh, I guess best word to describe that is desperate. I mean, there's of course many things that you could take into account. He's this dream guy who has these supernatural abilities. Like, of course, if there were any logic here, then Fred Krueger, when he first gained power, he would have just stuck the knife into everyone's stomach and that would be the roll credits moment. But this is a film, so things are a little bit more complicated and don't really make any goddamn sense in their own universes even. You just have to kind of roll with it. It happens in the first one, happens in the second, third, and the rest of the franchise. To me, Fred Krueger was never really like any of my favorite horror icons. I mean, it's an icon, it's a great character, great fun, very has a lot of personality. But it's on the side of fantasy so much that, as we see here, it's not even respecting its own rules in a way, so... That's why I gravitate towards something like the original Halloween. But this, the first and second one, as I've said countless of times, here Fred Krueger is still scary. You get the third one, he's not scary. <sighs> At the very end of the film, Fred Krueger, the fucking dream demon serial killer and the highlight of this franchise, is a cowering wimp. He's losing his energy. too weak to do anything who is afraid of one girl and basically spends the end of the film crouching in a, in a corner and, mm-hmm. and being afraid, not being able to do fuck all, and then is defeated by the power of love. Yep, that's how you defeat Jesus. the monster. Fucking Christ. Like, okay. I, I, I come to this film from the verse, first one where also I felt that the Home Alone antics were stupid as shit. Well, th- th- those are gone in, in the second one. I give it that one. But uh, I kissed it and it went away. Yeah, why not? It's like a modern adaptation of, I don't know, the Snow White. <laughs> Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, the, the well-known classical horror films. I'm okay with that. I'm not. I'm I mean, not. I, mean it, I, it, I, I expected more from the final ending. I... Well, sure, okay. Yeah, I give you that much. But still, I'm okay with that. Even if it doesn't make Freddy Krueger exactly look extremely terrifying or in control of the situation anymore. But that's kind of what happens in the first one as well. Even though it's a shorter moment, but it, it, it visibly whimpers and disappears. It does. It does. And if I remember that episode correctly in this podcast, I hated it in there also. Yeah, you did. Like, I, I it may be simply me, and maybe I'm missing something, but somehow I really don't get the horror wipe when the villain is a screw-up and then gets... Kind of defeated in these laughable methods, like repeatedly hammering him down with homemade booby traps, or in here with a kiss. 
what can I say? You know, uh, clearly you're looking for some kind of other resolution here. I'm not sure what you would be looking for. I would be looking for a real confrontation. Hmm. I yeah. I always felt that this was kind of a too easy in a way. There could have been more confrontation, but then again, how do you play that with somebody who has knives and is kind of has to, is in the control of the situation? And here we are even on I, Freddy's I, home home turf, and he still fails. I, I don't know. By the way, the sequels managed to do it. Yeah, did they? Well, they at least gave you a fucking confrontation. Like that's something. In a way, even the first one managed to give you more confrontation than this one. Like there, you had a physical confrontation with Freddy that then came down to us very quickly done. I don't believe in you. I'm not afraid of you. So you go away. Ending. And in here, in Freddy's Revenge, there the confrontation is switched into much longer. I'm not afraid of you, and I kind of love you. So you go away. Ending. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I, I, I wasn't afraid of neither one of those. Okay, this worked. This worked really well for me psychologically in the pool side of things and Lisa's home and the daddy can't help you now with Jesse. Even though there's not a lot of physical confrontation, but I'm kind of okay with that. It's a different take, and uh, you definitely have your confrontations in the third one. That I do. And, you know, that is one of the reasons why I do like the third one better. Why, why the, the entry point for in the franchise where I really got into it was the third one. And the fucking confrontations are so ludicrous in that film. The fucking Freddy turning into a worm. Freddy hanging from above a church and controlling somebody like a puppet. There's where it's going to total laughable shit area for me. It's definitely breaking every goddamn rule at that moment. Well, that is, but at the same time, I never saw the rules as where anything you should stick by too strictly, because nobody has managed to follow up these golden rules of the franchise. Mm. But in a way, Freddy was not defeated, because Freddy comes again to drive the bus into the desert, and we... Roll credits. And once again, I would point out that uh, the fr- girlfriend of Lisa makes the notion that the party was amazing. So the reset button has been pushed. Even though Lisa and Jesse have the dialogue that I can't believe it's finally over. Who, who knows? And M- maybe, <laughs> maybe Lisa's friend was just a hardcore partier and, you know, kill count <laughs> of three people is just means a good party to her. Yeah. Or she was so wasted. Completely missed the action. Well, the end credits themselves are a great work of art. Because we have this song from the... I believe it's recorded in 30s. Playing in the background. One of the greatest endings to a horror film. With that music. The song is... Did you ever see a dream walking? Performed by Bing Crosby. Big fan of this song. It gives this film perhaps kind of a more poetic touch... No, I wouldn't know. The influence was completely lost on me. Hmm. That's Freddy's Revenge. Then it is. Quickies, here we go. Favorite performance. Henrik goes first. I guess to me it is Robert Russell as Ron Grady. 
Oh, well, what an interesting choice. Hmm. Uh, I, I will go with Mark Patton. Huge range, lots to do. Yeah, somehow expected you to actually pick that one up. And I suppose you have nothing bad to say about his acting as well. Uh, it borders a line too goofy for me at times. Like in that yeah. one, scene, uh, one scene where he gives the complete pitch face to Lisa when he comes to Lisa's house with covered in blood, but it's it's kind of a, it's a, such a mess which uh, where it's hard to say what is Patton's fault and what is the fault of the director. Okay, I th- would think that that would be one of my top picks of his acting here, that particular scene. Yeah, I burst out laughing when I saw that one. And then I remembered that this was supposed to be a horror film, and I kind of felt bad about it. Hmm, okay. Hard to unpack that because I'm not so sure what was funny. Well, the whole expression and, and the pitch, no, no, don't talk to me, hand wave. Basically the whole scenario was funny. I never took it the hand wave like that. I just took it in a way that, okay, this is fucking absurd. And I, I don't know what to say to you right now, but this is how it is. That That most likely was what they were aiming at, but you know. I still laughed my ass off when I saw that one. <laughs> I can see it in your context, though. Like, <laughs> no, no, still not talking about this with you. Nope. <laughs> Favorite scene? Um, I guess it's that one wide shot at the very end when Lisa enters the power plant and is standing on top of the plant. Um... Okay, so that's your favorite shot. Well, I I guess that also pretty much is also kind of my favorite scene here. The scene that you hated, the end scene. Well, the things that actually, you know, precede the very ending of the scene. But mm. like, I, like I said, I don't have a problem with the dogs. I don't have a problem with the power plant. I don't have problem with that those ants that... Lisa sees. What I do have a problem with is Freddy being a complete fucking pussy at the end of this film. Hmm. Okay. You seem to hate all the aspects that I kind of like. I, I get the feeling that that is the entire goddamn episode. I kind of was afraid that that this is the road where we are going to head with this film all the way when way back when you started to push this film to be covered in our podcast. Hmm. With all the hype in from before, we are not doing so bad at the moment. But let's get deeper into this subject. Because my favorite fucking scene would be the pool scene. End of discussion. Yeah, yeah. You you, you, can, the, the, you can have... I'm, the, I'm not taking your favorite scene away from you. I know, but maybe some of the listeners are. Who are complaining about breaking the Freddy code at that scene. And I'm telling you, it's my favorite scene. Not because it breaks the rules, but because it is the favorite scene. Favorite quote? Ah, that would be... Yeah, and she's female, and she's waiting for you at the cabana, (laughs) and you wanna sleep with me. (laughs) Yeah, apart from the kind of obvious pick, you're all my children now. Maybe I would go with the... I threw my grandmother down a flight of stairs. I can't join you at the party. I'm grounded. I'm kind of getting the vibe that you would have wanted to do it yourself also. 
Is that something, some wishful fulfillment that I'm actually sensing in her voice? In no way. My grandmother is the sweetest of them all, of course. I took this <laughs> aspect to test in the laboratory and out came the result. But um, there are quite a lot of hilarious scenes, performances and quotes in this film. It's kind of a hard question actually, but that one comes into my mind. And all that, you've got the body, I've got the brain. It, it, legendary stuff. Or is it not in this podcast? It, it is, it is. There, there is Yay. some really great one-liners. It's been a while since this category has been appropriate in this podcast, but favorite kill? To me, and I am counting this as a kill, even though it's unconfirmed in the film, but it would be at the pool party scene, the let me help you guy. <laughs> the most idiotic fucking sorry sack of a brain dead mess that this film has to offer. Ah, <laughs> uh, you, you reminded me. We were laughing so much at that with my friend when we were teenagers. Um, good, good times. Oh my god. My favorite kill is, of course, the exploding bird. Yep, yep. Maybe just because I'm fucking with the general audience here. Maybe just because. It's a great kill. Yeah, Kari, following with that, with that you are not special mentality from the Ghost in the Shed episode. <laughs> a random confusing question would be, has your toaster ever exploded on you? It has, actually. Well, well, what happened? Uh, to my, I actually don't know what happened. It was way back when I was a kid. Thankfully, my mom was in the same room, so she could actually save the entire house from burning to the ground, but the best guess is that from repeated usage there would be breadcrumbs at the bottom of the toaster and those crumbs would have actually caught fire from the heat of the toaster. Mm. But yeah, the, the scenario presented in here, in, in the film with the flaming toaster, it has actually happened to me in real life. Even though, in, in my case, the toaster actually was, you know, connected to the electric socket. Okay. When it comes to household appliances and them working incorrectly, I once had a microwave when I was a student. This was a really old one. I was creeped by it in many occasions, but the ultimate creepiness happened when it was still on and heating my food. And then suddenly it, it, it had this kind of a door that kind of slides down and not to the side. So that suddenly the door slid down on its own and it was still on. It was still going and toasting and I immediately went to the ground and I grabbed the electrical socket and uh, took it off from the, from the electric socket. But if you're wondering in this podcast why I'm so freaking weird, it's because this uh, microwave managed to make me into some kind of a mutant, obviously. That, that, that could also explain your love for some films. Yeah. First image that comes to... Henrik's mind. Would be that close-up on Freddy's demonic eyes in that when, when he gives that whole you got the body, I got the mind speech. Like that one extreme close-up. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much what usually comes to my mind as well. And if it's not that, it's the scene with 
Grady. When Freddy is kind of cocooning into the real world, of course it really it doesn't make much sense in the sense that Freddy comes out, then Jesse is a whole unit again, and then they both coexist in the real world. And then sometimes they are together again as one unit. But uh, whatever movie. That's the Freddy series for you. When it comes to those eyes, yeah. They change the color of the eyes into something more amber in this film. To be more of this witch stuff. Yep, they they actually got rid of using Robert England's own eyes. It was yeah. how, how it was done in the previous film and now it's colored contact lenses. And I, I think the effect is better with the lenses. Like that that whole a dream demon a supernatural killer vibe comes off stronger. Hmm. Okay, yeah, could be. What took you out of Freddy's Revenge? Don't say everything or I'm going to personally come to Helsinki to punch some sense into you. Well, I was kind of taken out of the film pretty much constantly by all the goofy shit that I just witnessed. Pfft, it's not that goofy. I would say the first one is goofier. I I I I don't know. I don't know. This this is the film that is best exemplified by that one scene where a dude gets banged in his ass. And the first is Home Alone stuff that you so so much admire. I mean, Freddy is re- this is the this is the most serious and most freakiest nightmare in the entire franchise. In fact, the first one is is more comedical than this one. This is most ass banking in the series. I give it that much. And that could be a that's a good highlight of this film. Um. Well, well, like, like, kind of a to borrow from angry video game nerd here, but if, if you would think that, uh, consider that this movie is ass, well, in, in that case, you know, this movie would literally be ass. Yeah, it's doing something different, and it's in the weakest, the weakest section of, of the film is the first 40 or 45 minutes. Then it kind of starts to pick itself, because it starts to investigate why this stuff is going on and we give, get the solution by the end. Yeah, it, it kind of doesn't even properly investigate that. Uh, you, you get two investigatory scenes. The first one, which is the diary. Nancy's diary, which Jesse has never seen, but simply opens up to the exposition pages. And the later one is when when Lisa has managed to find a few newspaper clippings about Freddy Krueger. But this exposition works. It's believable. It explains why they start to know so much. It's all laid there in the diary, which for some reason she forgot there, but whatever. Yeah, but that's to, a great to me, way to pull this Freddy stuff in. To me, it didn't work. Like, I, hmm. I, I wasn't... I, I was with the newspaper clippings. Like, I, I was okay with that, but I didn't like the diary at all. Henrik is no fun. No, 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 I, I, I'm the serious part of this podcast. <laughs> what happened here? <laughs> what took me out? Well, what took me out was the random happenings during the first 40-45 minutes. That didn't seem to be connected at all. Even though we understand it in a sense that Freddy is trying to get into this world via all these random occurrences. Why he decides to pull them off without appearing himself for most of the time, nobody knows, but... That's how it rolls, and it's still the weakest part of the film. 
What pulled you in? That actually is a trickier question than what took me out. Um, I guess it would be the first appearance of Freddy. Like, to me, that was the strongest moment of the film. Daddy can't help you now. Uh, precisely. It's super strong, but... What pulled me in was the original theme of adding these gay elements here and having a lead that is actually not a woman in horror films in the 80s. So good job with that. Something else? I like how creepy Freddy is here, as stated many times. I like how it seems like even if the film doesn't seem to be often knowing what it's doing, you can still kind of make sense of it in its own universe if you well you can put it in two categories you either give it too many excuses or you kind of understand where the filmmakers are coming from with this witchcraft stuff for example but um what pulled me in for the most was the dark tones of this film it's the darkest one in this series yeah even though you don't agree with me and uh whatever and uh <laughs> well, you are, you are the one who pushes up that we should fight over these movies in the podcast. Yeah, we we are we need more fighting in this podcast. Scissors uh, of Sacrilegi. What would you change in the film? <sighs> kind of a just like like with our latest Bond episode film on Her Majesty's Secret Service. This also is a case where I don't actually can pinpoint one specific aspect. Which goes wrong. To me, this is also a dumpster fire that is ever spreading and always on. So the best course of correction here, in my opinion, would be simply, you know, taking this also back to the back of the shed and quickly mercy killing it and starting all over. <laughs> you can't do that in this film. You can't do that because the entire LGBT crowd is going to hate you forever for it. And for, burn for, you at the stake. For, for, no, for no good reason. For no good reason at all. You you can't do this here. Yeah, I, I can. I fucking can. Oh my god. I mean, you can in my books, but you. But then again, you just can't. You're going to be burned. <laughs> well, fuck you. Fight me. <laughs> I would make the 40 minutes first 40 minutes to make more sense make kind of like a more cohesive unit make Jesse to investigate it more out of his own will and not pulling the girlfriend to do everything for him I would remove the bird scene to be sure I would try to make it appear to be making more sense something needs to be done in the first 40 minutes too connect the dots, not just blow these random events. In the first film, it's kind of a one kill after another, after each dream, so they have a right to exist, these dreams, in that sense. It carries the narrative forward. Here it doesn't do shit. And if I could, I would also do something about the ending, to make it end with more of a blast. I also wasn't too hot on on the final scene, where the bus drives back to the Desert. No, I mean it's yeah. That that was yeah. kind of a bullshit sequel baiting. Yeah, it's it's doing the same stunt that the first one does. Now that you mentioned it, it it very much is. They simply switched the cars basically and did the same fucking ending. Yeah, only in in this case it feels even more sad 
somehow. Kind of a, kind of a, and even more baffling because the final dialogue, it fights itself in a sense, like the main leads make the notion that what happened did happen, and like you pointed out, Lisa's friend kind of gives you the inclination that it didn't happen, so... Yeah, that's an incredible piece of dialogue. It kind of lessens the effect of the film. Yup. And I'm also I'm not the biggest fan of the hand bursting through the shirt at the very end of the sequel painting scene. Yeah, and in the first one, you could kind of still buy the ending where Freddy comes back, I guess. I I didn't, I didn't. Not, not even in the first one. My kind of, kind of a biggest problem with the franchise, and this also goes for the further sequels, are the moments when the film officially is over. And they still try to give you that it's not over moment. I, I've, I, I've liked some of them more than some, but I've never been a fan of that aspect of the franchise. Yeah, it could have ended with the lighter tone. It doesn't always have to pull this trick. I mean, after this kind of ending, I'm always like wanting to know more. Okay, what, what happened then? Like, why did this happen? What, what's happening next to these characters? Precisely, and it kind of a takes the point out of. For me, it takes the point out of the preceding film. Like, why, why did we just follow through the film? Mm. Why did we follow these characters trying to fight against Freddy? If the final notion still is that none of it matter. Like, I- I- yeah. if it's just some dream prank on behalf of Freddy. Maybe in this movie's case it's more frustrating because the movie starts with the bus and ends with the bus, so it, it's in kind of a eternal loop in the, the whole plot. Hi, Rick. You really know you're watching Freddy's Revenge. When? When the film tries to sell you ass-banging as a horror moment. It's it's kind of the same situation as with, for example, at times with Stephen King. Like, in, in Shining, Stephen tries to sell you hedge animals as a legitimately scary thing. And, well, hedge animals are not scary. And neither is ass-banking. Hmm. You really know you're watching Freddy's Revenge when you see Freddy appearing from the pool, like coming from a trampoline, challenging 20-plus partygoers, breaking all the rules, and being scary as hell in his most scariest nightmare of this franchise. But um, three adjectives to describe the film. Goofy, gay, and ass-banky. Because all the (laughs) ass. Hmm. Dark, original, and scary. Did you look at your watch? Yeah. You most likely expect that I did, but I didn't. I didn't wa- look at my watch to read of this. Of course, movie. you didn't. Yeah, I was too busy laughing. <laughs> I didn't watch my watch. It's a terror fiesta. Would you recommend this film? I would not recommend Nightmare on Elm Street too. What a surprise! <laughs> well, what did you expect? It's 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 not scary. It's it's goofy. It tries to sell you ass banking of all fucking things. And why are why are you so hung up on this ass? Because banking? because to, to me it's it's kind of the highlight of the movie, missing the point <laughs> of being scary. Like I I, well, I, I you I'm, know that like me 
the filmmakers, the producers, the actors, even the local police criminal laboratory, even today hasn't been able to figure out what the fuck were the guys thinking when they pulled this off. Like, like who legitimately designed the scene and thought that, yeah, this is, this is going to work well in our horror film. It's, it's one of the great mysteries of our time. Amongst there, you know, well. the Bermuda Triangle, the UFOs, and what the fuck were they thinking? And I... you Go ahead. Mm. Well, it's your shining moment here, of course, but I'm going to interrupt just to say that we have gone through, like, 45 plus episodes here, and, you know, you find a lot of poetic values in several films, and I find in the ass banking the fact that uh, Jesse and Freddy kind of have this this uh, sexual, playful thing going on with each other, and Freddy giving a little spank to this coach, I mean, it, it kind of fits it, and, it, and it's funny, but it's also scary, because the guy gets brutally killed. And and I can get it. I, I can get where you're coming from, and... You know, if, if if you want to read the sexual aspect to it and like the scene for that matter, you know, go ahead. And that's kind of a, my whole coming to point in the whole gay aspects of the film. Like, I know, I know that the film is, is a, some kind of a darling of the LGBT community. And many find the film as empowering gay presentation. And and if you do, you know, more power to you. Like I said previously, I'm not I'm not trying to be mean here. I'm not trying to take your presentation film away from you. But like mentioned, there is numbers of interviews done throughout the ages. Even quite recently in, in form of the Never Sleep Again documentary where Everybody makes the statement that the gay overtones of this film were not meant to be there. That what the, the gay aspects were not intentional. They were a fluke. And I can see seeing how the latest documentary, how, how the Never Sleep Again was made. Was it 2010? Uh, 2010. So so when the when the documentary was done. No, no matter w- what year it was, but it was on this side of 2000s. So it was done on a more liberal time, when you could easily re- earn some high remarks by, you know, simply rewriting the past, making the statement that, yeah, 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 I intended that gay stuff to be there from, from day one. It was all intentional. They didn't take that approach. They were extremely firm and clear that they didn't intend the homosexual aspects of the film to be there. And for that honesty, for that backbone, I am more than willing to praise the director and praise everyone taking part in making of this film. You know, that, that, that is a rare sense of honesty that you don't often get in Hollywood. So for that matter... By all means, my hat's off to the guys, but I can't celebrate this film for the homosexual overtones when in its core it still is a fuck-up on the part of the filmmakers. I, I will celebrate the filmmakers, I will celebrate the backbone and the honesty, but I won't celebrate the film. 
On my end, I will not much celebrate the honesty here because that honesty quite took its time to come out because prior to this documentary, I believe, the screenwriter did and everybody denied that there was any kind of homosexual overtones ever intended. And then he comes out in this interview and, uh, okay, it was supposed to be subtext, okay? And at the time when this kind of uh, openness was the most needed, Hollywood was not willing to come forward with it until it was accepted more widely. Would I recommend this film? Of course I would recommend this film. It's uh, definitely after the first one, it's the best nightmare. And after this, it's just going downhill straight away and it's going to represent the kind of Freddy that I don't care for. Here Freddy is still scary. Like mentioned ad nauseum, the first 40 minutes don't really have this cohesiveness to it that you would wish there to be. But I do like this love against the evil aspect. I do like several like um, scenes kind of that kind of follow each other aren't and are not that much connected to each other. Even in the 40 minutes, you have a cl- lot of great moments. It doesn't always work, but it works enough to bring you the scares, some good and notable lighting there, and a reversed concept from, from the first one, where the leading lady is not a leading lady, it's a leading guy playing the Scream Queen, perhaps, but... Uh, they are kind of having fun with this reversal of roles, in a sense. Like those screams that Jesse is punching out. And it has some really laugh-out-loud moments. Not the moments that you have mentioned, but there are a lot of them. Intentional humor. Maybe some unintentional moments as well. But to drive this rambling home, yeah, I would recommend it. Freddy at his best. A notable horror film. Not only for the LGBT, but from the 80s. With many legendary moments. Come on, bring on the challenge. Hmm? Now's your great time to pick up a fight. <laughs> I, I, I don't have a compulsive need to fight with you over this over this assessment. Like, you, 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 find it, you, you find it scary, I don't. And when it comes to the gay overtones, like, like I said, you know, if, if you want to take them, fine. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make an excessive attempt to rob a LGBT community. A you, know, you know what? God you damn. know what? Like, like I stated in some previous episode while rambling as well, I mean, I don't really care about that LGBT. As I said, I can remove all the LGBT from the fucking film. I don't care, it's still going to work, with or without it, wonderfully well. But it's a nice little touch. I, I, I could see that that is the aspect why this is most well-remembered today. Like, because that community took this film as their own. It is, but it's still not the aspect that carries this film. And I, I would even make the case that at times, you know, if, if you take the gay reading into this film, this film can actually be a bit problematic even on that regard. They were going to stick the Freddy's knife fingers into Jesse's mouth in one scene, but they didn't do that because Mark Patton, the actor, felt a little bit uncomfortable with that. Yeah, and, and good reason. See, seeing how the knife hand prop itself, I came to understand, wasn't at this point the knives were not 
redetectable, like they didn't pull back when they hit something. Mm, yeah. So that would have also been extremely, you know, dangerous stunt to pull off. Mm, perhaps. You want your main actor to be able to speak throughout the filming, so. And so it goes. I mean, we are much too civil here. We have taken too much of the scientist bill in this podcast, so we just couldn't pick up the fight. Maybe in some episode we will come through the cables and that could be still ahead. We have a lot of ideas for episodes like that. Well, I will be here forever, you know, combating your competitive nature. (laughs) I didn't know I'm so competitive here. The things you learn in this podcast, which you can find on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Choose your own place to chill. We also do have the 20 films from 20 different countries. International Cinema Challenge from 2019. Going strong throughout the year. We have covered quite a lot of films and soon we'll be covering also the Prisoner of the Mountains from Russia. I hope you'll join us for that episode. That'll be a lot of fun. That'll be up next. Also good to know that we have... uh, finally started to touch on the James Bond films in this podcast. It's uh, about time. And every month, every last week of the month until the release of Bond 25, we will be analyzing one James Bond film. So far we have done the one that we voted in the lab as our favorite uh, from Sean Connery, from Russia with Love, and the favorite from George Lazenby on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And next we are going to touch The Spy Who Loved Me. But once again, join us for Prisoner of the Mountains next week. Anything to add or should I exit the premises? Let's just leave the lab. Okay. In that case, just remember guys and girls, it was only meant to be subtext. Okay. (laughs) See you next week. See you next week. Kuuluuko? Päätkiä on totaalisesti. Kuuluuko, kuuluuko, kuuluuko. Nyt ei. Ehkä nyt. Ehkä nyt, ehkä nyt.